And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Venema. He is the president of Mid-America Reform Seminary. Dr. Venema, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, I'm delighted for the opportunity. It's been a while since we talked, and uh, I continue to have an interest in uh, Christ's kingdom, his rule and reign in this world. And I'd like today, if you would be willing to contrast the biblical view with something called radical two-kingdom theology, for lack of a better word, uh, R2K for short. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) maybe you could explain to our listeners what that view is and then what the biblical view is. Well, one of the difficulties, I think, adding the adjective radical two-kingdom already uh, indicates it. There are diversity of viewpoints that go under the rubric of two kingdoms or a broad distinction is made between our life as members of the church, our spiritual life and calling, and what we do in our ordinary daily vocations, our life outside of the sphere more narrowly of the institutional church and our our spiritual life in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the language of two kingdoms really wants to, and particularly if you add the adjective radical, draw a pretty sharp line of demarcation. I've used the expression sort of hermetically seal off what belongs to our life outside of the framework of that one institution, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a redemptive institution. There's a non-redemptive world that we occupy, you might say, in terms of the world as a seculum, or this, as we sometimes refer to it as a secular world, whether it's economics, business, uh, recreation, family life, our calling as citizens of a particular state or commonwealth, um, art, culture, science, all of these various areas, what Abraham Kuyper once described as different life spheres that aren't immediately connected or in any way um, directed by the ministry of the word of the gospel that is the calling of the church. What it tends to do in its more radical expression is encourage what is broadly called secularization, where you you don't view your life as a believer, let's just say from Monday through Saturday, with the exception of the Lord's Day, when you assemble with God's people for worship and hear his word proclaimed, the means of grace administered. You don't view your life as a life in Christ in service to Christ and in service to others, in union with Christ. Uh, You you view your life very much as a common life that you share with those who are not members of Christ or of his church, where the the standards and the practices are virtually indistinguishable between believers and non-believers. Yeah, that's helpful. Our work is really important, certainly to us, I like to think that our work is important to God, that he takes pleasure in us doing a good job under his lordship as we go out day by day to our jobs, that um, even 
the plumber, there may not be a Christian solder that he is using, but his approach under the lordship of God will certainly be different than the unbeliever, it seems to me. Well, I I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, I think the question has to be put in a broadly biblical, redemptive historical framework. And by that I mean, if you think in terms of the original creation and created order, God created man after his own image, and he gave him dominion and care, stewardship over the creation, as his as theologians refer to it as his vicegerent. And as an image bearer of God, the whole of life was to be lived according to God's ordinances, in service to God, in glorifying God, and in service to others who bear his image. Marriage and family was instituted. And in a broad general way, Adam, representing the whole human race, together with Eve, the mother of all living, were to offer themselves as image bearers of God in a God-glorifying life. And that included every appropriate calling task, whether within marriage, within family, and in service to others, in a stewardly care under God's kingdom, that is, under his rule. God is The whole creation is a kind of creation kingdom. God is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, but he's granted to the human race and granted to the human race in Adam that kind of calling or task, call it broadly his vocation to image God in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in the full range of all legitimate tasks in fulfilling of what sometimes is called the cultural mandate. Now, I say all of that because if you put the work of redemption subsequent to the fall and the breach in the relationship between the human race and God who created the human race. If you think of redemption subsequent to the fall and God pronounces the curse, Paul speaks in Romans of how even the creation itself groans in travail awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. The brokenness of human life, the distortion and breach in the relationship with God and as well the relationship with one another, whether in marriage, family, or in society, what is God's great redemptive project? Well, ultimately, it's summed up in the second greater eschatological Adam, the Son of God who becomes man, who assumes our flesh and blood in order to fulfill his office as prophet, priest, and king. And the way I understand the work of redemption is that by the renewing and redeeming work, the bloodshed of the Lord Jesus Christ, the granting of his spirit whereby we, through the word, are brought back into, through Christ, as mediator fellowship with God, is that we're restored and are being renewed, even recreated, and our whole life is reoriented so that we in Christ and through fellowship with Christ, indwelt by his Spirit, consecrated and devoted to God, we employ everything that we are and all that we've been given, albeit imperfectly and still sinfully. We employ it, however, in a renewed fellowship with God, doing all to God's glory and in service to those who bear his image, fellow human beings, and particularly within the fellowship of the church, fellow believers. So really, you could say that in the new order, God's redemptive kingdom, 
it's not just a restorative, uh, a restitution of what once was. It ultimately will be culminated in the consummation when the whole of the creation, as you see that represented at the end of the book of Revelation, will be one great creation temple, the new Jerusalem come down from above, the bride of Christ, where the new humanity, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation who are uh, written, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The whole representation and the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the new order where there's no more curse, no more darkness, is that God has brought us in Christ and by his redeeming work, by the Spirit, to our ultimate destiny, which is to live in a creation tabernacle, temple, that is devoted and consecrated as holy to the Lord, where our every breath, our every action, is a life of ceaseless worship and praise, service to God and service to others. Now, if you put this question in that broad framework, it seems to me that believers who are redeemed and purchased by the blood of the Lamb, to use one of my favorite catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism, they belong to this redemptive mediator and king, Lord of all, Jesus Christ, and are by his Spirit made heartily ready and willing. They belong to him body and soul, and by his Spirit they're made heartily ready and willing, as the language of the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, to offer their very selves, body and soul, in service to God and in service to others according to God's holy law. Now, there's no, there's no uh, facet, no crevice, no crack, no little sliver of life. Doesn't the Apostle Paul say, whatever you do, whether it be eating or drinking, uh, that you are always mindful that you belong to the Lord and you're to do it to his glory and in service to him. Now, the, the practical question of how that works out in the particular life circumstance of believers if they're in business or they're in some activity of, of the type I described earlier, whether business, whether in their family, their marriage, all of it needs to be viewed as in response to God's grace and his work of redemption. Uh, what is my, uh, one of my favorite words is the word, the, the reformers rediscovered, vocation. What is my calling? I am called into fellowship with God through Christ and by his spirit to serve. And how can I serve God? How can I serve others in God's name and by the power of Christ's spirit in whatever my particular vocation? Just one last thing about that. Uh, when they employed Luther as well as Calvin, this language of vocation, they deliberately affirmed the priesthood of all believers and they opposed the so-called religious orders of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, where you had a sharp demarcation between the religious life and one secular life. And one of the great <clears throat> rediscoveries of the Reformation was is that we're set free in Christ for service to Christ, not to obtain our salvation, but to serve God and glorify him in the full range of our activities. I think it's very interesting that Luther is often adduced as a proponent of a so-called two kingdoms view. Well, he does use the language of two kingdoms, but he's also someone who would say, 
any task, whether great or small, however menial, if done in service and in gratitude, you, you are the free servant of all. That's part of the impact of the gospel in your daily life. So whether you're a farmer, whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, do it all to God's glory. Do it with energy. As Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, whatever you do in the light of Christ's resurrection, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because in the Lord, nothing you do is in vain. I think it was Luther who said, interestingly, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, you should still plant that tree <laughs> in the backyard uh, until the Lord comes. Yeah, that's great. What about that original creation mandate, cultural mandate, whatever you want to call it? Is it proper for me to see my vocation and the tasks that I do in life as fulfilling and living out that creation mandate? Is that a proper perspective? Absolutely. In fact, this is one of the problems with what you term the radical two-kingdom view. They juxtapose whatever our calling is in the spiritual kingdom in Christ with the common kingdom, the secular world, where the language of a cultural mandate is legitimate. And so that belongs to this secular, non-redemptive kingdom, a life that is the same, identical, shared by and ordered by the same standards, not Scripture, but God's natural law, in your common callings. Now, I happen to believe that even the language of the Great Commission has to be read very carefully. There are echoes in it of not only uh, some of the Psalms, including Psalm 8, but I think there's even an echo of the early chapters of Genesis. We are told by our Lord, having all authority in heaven and on earth, going therefore, make disciples, and disciples are not simply worshipers, they're followers. They live a life that is discipled. It is a life that conforms to the standard of God's holy word, wherever that word speaks to what we're called to do, but particularly the phrase, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you to do them. That's a very comprehensive mandate. It's not simply the redeeming and snatching of a few souls out of the fire, so as to escape the wrath to come. It's a being discipled, disciplined, formed, nurtured by everything that God has given us to know regarding his commandments. And the richest and fullest revelation of God's commandments, of course, and they cover all areas of life, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Uh, you just have to read Paul's epistles to realize that uh, they often end with a whole series of exhortations to husbands, wives, parents, children, people who are working and uh, working for others, serving others, how they should interact and engage with each other in their daily vocations and callings very much in the particulars of how we should speak, what language we should use, echoes of the Ten Commandments, the moral law in its summary form, first table having to do with love for God, the second love for each other. 
my main point here is that that commission is not simply to save people from the fearful prospect of condemnation. It's to bring them into a new life relationship with God through Christ and to empower us by the outpoured spirit given to the church at Pentecost. This coming Lord's Day is Pentecost. The spirit who furnishes and gifts God's people, uh, matures them and brings them into greater conformity to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That, it seems to me, gives you a broad, clear sense of why you can't slice life up into separate compartments and say, well, this is my religious life. Here's where I am in direct service to the Lord, worshiping and serving Him and experiencing His grace. But for the remainder of my life, I'm making common cause, and uh, it's indistinguishable. It's of one piece with the life lived of those who are outside of Christ and haven't the Spirit of Christ in them, or understanding of what God in His Word has made known regarding how He would have us, how then we should live. Yeah, it's helpful. Um, So, to call work outside of the church common, and sometimes the word profane is used, doesn't sit well, it seems to me, with the wonderful task that God has given us to do. If we sincerely and with passion do a work other than, um, let's say, going to church, other than witnessing, let's say, and we, we're passionate about it, and let's say it's a cultural work, and we're, we're working on uh, the, this creation mandate, if you will, are we compromising the sufficiency of Christ's work? I think what tends to happen is you sequester Christ's work as Redeemer to the redemptive kingdom or to life within the Church as an institution through her officers and means of grace. And you you do acknowledge, I think most two-kingdom proponents will argue, it is God's kingdom, this common kingdom. It's just that it's a kingdom not ordered and normed so much, if at all, by what we know through God's special revelation and scripturated in the Bible. It's, it's a kind of life that is profane in the sense of it has no uh, connection, it has no link with our identity as members of Christ. We really live as citizens of two worlds. We're citizens of a spiritual kingdom, we're together with all human beings and all creatures, citizens of a common kingdom, where the second person of the Trinity, or the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is indeed God, but he orders and norms that kingdom solely through what we know of his will by way of natural law, or our discernment of the moral content of the natural law. Um, It's very neat and tidy. I think it is very appealing because it allows you to sort of avoid the difficult, hard questions that many Christians face. Um, Should I pursue this as a legitimate calling? Should I engage in this work 
for the rest of my life? What relationship does my marriage have and my conduct within my uh, marriage and in relation to my children, if the Lord gives me children, what does it have to do with who I am in Christ? And I think it, what, what it really will do is it, it will privatize and um, secularize, privatize the Lordship of Jesus Christ redemptively to that sphere of life that belongs to the institutional church, and it'll, it'll encourage a long process that's been taking place in our Western societies, at least, and cultures for many decades, even hundreds of years since the time of post-Reformation, the Enlightenment, where the claims of Christ are reduced in size, the spiritual life is very restricted and narrowly defined, and the remainder of my life is outside of the reach and claim of Christ as Redeemer. Mm. And I think that has some very fatal and uh, serious consequences. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm talking in very general terms, I recognize. And one of the things two kingdom proponents will often say, well, what difference does it make? Maybe it's the motivation and the zeal with which you do your work and the like. And that, in some ways, is not untrue, but I wouldn't want to diminish the significance of living a fully human life as an image-bearer of God and as one redeemed through the work of Christ and empowered and energized by His Spirit to do whatever is a legitimate task and work, quorum Deo, before the face of God, mm. in every legitimate human endeavor. Why, why would you want to discourage anyone from thoughtfully and prayerfully, devotedly engaging in their life's callings, plural, because we all wear many hats and have many different assignments. You know, we're all citizens of, at least many of you in your, in your audience will be citizens of these United States. It's, it's very easy to say, well, you know, politics and religion, they have no connection. And um, in some respects, the, uh, the radical demarcation of church and state, separation of church and state, as often put it, which really isn't the language of our Constitution, talks about the free exercise of religion, but not that the state has the power to impose or enforce uh, religious standards or particular convictions that are confessional in nature upon the citizens. I mean, there's a permission granted within the civil sphere through our Constitution for various faiths to freely exercise and express themselves according to their own conscience and convictions. I'm not in any way arguing for a kind of theocratic view of things. But what I am arguing for, if we stay in the very difficult sphere of one's political life or conduct as a citizen of these United States, I would like to encourage Christian believers to think very carefully about what teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you to do them means for me. Mm in the exercise of my responsibilities as a citizen. And I don't think we can um, absolve ourselves of engaging in what sometimes is called the public square in a unashamedly confessing the name of Christ fashion. 
mm-hmm. and give a give a reason for the hope that we have and for the convictions that we now you employ appropriate means in the political sphere to make and bear that witness, but you don't leave Christ behind when you go to the ballot box or when you reflect on issues of the day. It's pretty obvious that virtually all political issues have moral implications and standards that you would hold to as a Christian that come to bear on those questions. And I'm not pleased when, to use your term again, a radical two-kingdom position wants to say, well, you shouldn't really even oppose abortion in the public domain by appealing to the teaching of Scripture Mm -hmm. or the things that you confess to be true about human life created by God and the like. Uh, It deserves to be protected and preserved, and the power of the sword and the civil magistrate should be harnessed to that end. I don't have to make the case outside of the church by a mere, a common standard called natural law that presumably everybody agrees upon. The fact of the matter is they don't. It's not only God's word, but it's God's truth, however it's revealed, that is suppressed in unrighteousness. And that can happen in, in all kinds of areas of life. Today we've been talking with Dr. Cornelius Venema, and uh, I apologize that we've run out of time already. We could talk at least for another hour. He is Professor of Doctrinal Studies and President at Mid-America Reform Seminary, and we've been talking about the radical two-kingdom theology versus the biblical approach. And Dr. Venema, if someone would like to learn more about the seminary, what is the website address there? It's very easy. It's midamerica, no hyphen, no caps, dot edu. And uh, you can find a good deal of information about us through the website. I would encourage your listeners, if they have an interest, to learn a little bit about us, to go to that website. Just one comment about the seminary. We're, as one of my colleagues says, it's kind of a bland name, midamerica. But at least it locates us geographically. We're on the southeast side of the greater Chicago area, northwest Indiana. We're not in a cornfield. We're part of the broader suburban surrounding communities of of the Chicagoland area. And, um, well, I could say a whole lot more about the seminary. We don't have time today. (laughs) Dr. Venema, it's it's an honor to talk with you, and I want to thank you for fitting us in today, and may God bless you. Well, thank you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.